Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Father Jarrett is here from Kansas, uh, here for the March for Life, which I hope all of you are planning on attending, um, and he's the vocations director from Kansas. So, Father, if you could please uh, lead us in prayer. Let us pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we gather this evening in praise and thanksgiving for your many blessings. We thank you for the gift of life. We thank you for the gift of our faith. We thank you for the opportunity for relationship with you, and we thank you for the gift of your spirit, that desire that is within each of us to grow in relationship with you, to grow in understanding and knowledge of you, of your word of your church. We pray for that spirit to be upon us this evening, to be upon our speaker, that we may open our hearts and our minds to what it is that you would teach us. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Father. For those that, um, that watched the EWTN show, uh, I want to thank you for your many prayers. Thank you. I think it went about as well as it could have. I was quite nervous as he started going, you know, with his introduction, my heart was just boom, boom, coming out of my chest. And I said, I had to calm down, calm down. And I was, I don't know if you noticed that my, my fingers were on the top of the chair and they had to peel them off actually afterwards. But uh, we're very thankful to Father Groeschel, the group that went with us about, there was about 36, 38 of us total. Uh, we had a great time. Uh, went to Mother Cabrini's shrine. Uh, we went to the Cloisters Museum. And uh, the best of all, we saw Father Groeschel. He invited us after the show to come that next morning to celebrate Mass with him at his retreat center and have breakfast with him. So we had a chance to just sit down with Father Groeschel and have a cup of coffee and chat with him. That was a, a special gift from him. And I think we'll, the group that went will cherish that always in our hearts one lady that walked in says, Sabatino, you're better on television than you are in person. So <laughs> I'm not sure if that was a compliment or not. Um, since Father Groeschel's show on Sunday night, we have had 6,000 hits to our website. And I haven't checked it today. So um, I've had phone calls from, from Texas, California, uh, everywhere, New York. In fact, I just received an email from Ireland today. Uh, from a gentleman that runs a free Catholic newspaper and wants to put an ad in for us for free so that his readers know about us. I said, fantastic, get our information out there. The response has just been absolutely wonderful. If you haven't had a chance to watch the interview, I um, would encourage you to do so. I mentioned Christum College in the interview a number of times because of how formative it was in my life. And, and I will tell you that Dr. O'Donnell's History 101 class, I still remember very clearly taking his final and, um, and uh, for History 101. Better than I am. And, <laughs> and uh, it was a moment of, um, of grace for me. I was just, everything was coming clear. And, um, and I was seeing the church and our history 
and Christ in a new way, and it set me on a new path in my life. So I want to thank you very much, Dr. O'Donnell. Please welcome back our speaker, Dr. Timothy O'Donnell. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Sabatino. Thank you so very much, Sabatino. It's great to be back with you all and see you all here. Uh, I would like to add my own accolades to Sabatino. We turned the show on and we're watching with my family and some of the little kids said, oh, are we going to watch 10 minutes of this? And I said, well, let's just wait and see. Never heard a complaint. They were mesmerized. They loved it. So Sabatino, you did a fabulous job and I just want to congratulate you again publicly. Well, we began with the prayer, but let's always keep focused on the Holy Spirit, asking the Holy Spirit to be with us, especially as we're taking time to work our way through God's Word and reflect on this great gospel. Uh, One of the titles of St. Matthew is the Evangelist of the Church, and the Church is on every page of what he's talking about. And so what we'd like to do tonight is start with the kingdom, pick up where we left off, and sort of begin Jesus' public ministry and talk about the charter of his kingdom, which is the greatest homily ever preached. And you know what that is, don't you? Sermon on the Mount. Remember that line in A Man for All Seasons? The nobility of England would have slept through the Sermon on the Mount. But we do need to spend some time and take a close look at that. What I'd like to do now is pick up where we left off. We had looked at the infancy narrative in Matthew. We had talked about the fact that this was Joseph's reflection. You remember that? That he had several angelic appearances, annunciations, paralleling Mary's that she had in the Gospel of St. Luke. But remember, this Gospel is written by a Jewish man, Matthew, for the Hebrew people. And so there's a very definite Hebrew touch to this. So let's open up and start where we left off in chapter 3. Okay? We are on chapter 3, verse 13. I think we just got to the baptism. We didn't discuss the baptism, did we? No. Okay, good. Or else your memory is as bad as mine is. So we'll start with the baptism, because that is the first public manifestation. Now remember, all of the Gospels are clear. (laughs) He's on earth 33 years. 30 of those years are spent with his mother, all right? Thirty are spent with his mother, but also as a common workman. It tells us something about ordinary work. If you think that you're not involved in any great apostolate, everything you do can be sanctified. I assume you do the morning offering, right? Oh, my Jesus, through the Immaculate Heart of Mary, I offer thee my prayers, works, joys, and sufferings. Jesus, by showing those 30 years, shows that everything can be sanctified. An ordinary work, the work of a manual labor, and that's what he did, all right? Because he was the son of Joseph. Joseph taught him how to be a carpenter, and he did that for 30 years. Now the time has come for there to be a public manifestation. John the Baptist has been preaching. Remember, it's a huge stir. People are coming from Syria, across the Jordan, an official delegation from Jerusalem, a faraway Syria. They're all coming. Why? There has been no prophet in Israel for 400 years, for four centuries. They've been reading the prophets in the synagogue, at the temple, praying, reflecting. And now this man who comes out, looking very much like Elijah, is out preaching a very shocking message. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. It is present. And he talks about the one who is to come right after him. And so this is the moment. 
chapter 3, verse 13. Let's take a look at that. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John was for hindering him and said, It is I who ought to be baptized by thee, and dost thou come to me? Now sometimes we think people just didn't really need faith, or they had it all together, they all understood. Did John the Baptist know who Jesus was? Well, he certainly knew a lot about him. He certainly knew a lot about him. Now remember, they probably grew up together. If Mary visited Elizabeth for the birth of the Baptist, do you think that she never went back to see Elizabeth again? Of course she did. She would have gone back. They would have grown up together. And as soon as he sees him coming, the first thing out of his mouth is, I ought to be baptized by you. Now this is the greatest man born of woman, right? And yet he sees Jesus coming and says, I ought to be baptized by you. So he knows something, right? That's why if you jump to John's gospel, which we cannot do, the first thing he says when he sees Jesus, and John was intimate, John the evangelist was intimate with John the Baptist, the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So John knew, and that's why he's puzzled because he's coming. Now remember what John's baptism is. What kind of baptism is it? It's a baptism of repentance. Who's submitting to the right? Sinners, right? So what's that tell you knows about Jesus? He's not a sinner. He's incredible. I mean, there's, there is this veil over the hidden light, but you sometimes wonder when, what went on in those conversations. You know, when Joseph came down in the morning to get his coffee, and sitting at the kitchen table is God and the Immaculate Conception. I kind of feel sorry for you. What do you say? Like, How's it going, everybody? <laughs> I guess it's going pretty well, all right? So John is aware of this, and he knows that Jesus is coming with a superior baptism. He says, ah, it is I who ought to be baptized by thee, and dost thou come to me? John, and we want to have that spirit of John, John is overwhelmed at what is being communicated to him by Jesus' action of coming. Now, you all know what it's like to be falsely accused, right? How righteous we can be when we're falsely accused. You accuse me of cheating? I did not cheat. I didn't. And you just get all righteous. Da, 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 da. Now, what's it like when you are totally innocent and you are perfectly innocent and you're going to look like you are the worst of sinners and yet you are sinless? Do you see the point? And that's why John is shocked, but he's learning something here. But Jesus answered and said to him, Let it be so now, for so it becomes for us to fulfill all justice, or all righteousness, whatever you want. This is the, right, this is the way of righteousness, and it is the way of humility. Then he permitted him. And when Jesus had been baptized, he immediately came up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. Mark is even stronger. Rent asunder, ripped apart. Now that's symbolic for us, right? Because the heavens have been closed, right? <laughs> the heavens are ripped apart. They are ripped open. And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. 
It's sort of fitting today is the feast of Pope Fabian and St. Sebastian. Did you know that? Pope Fabian, probably the most bizarre papal election in history. You know the story? He's a layman. He comes out from the country, enters the city of Rome, and there's an election. He sort of joins the group, and a dove flies out of heaven and lands on his head, and he kind of freaks out, and everyone says, it's a sign of the Holy, the, the Holy Spirit. He's the guy who should be Pope, and they elected him Pope. Pope Fabian, don't forget him. He's a famous guy. Wonderful Pope. St. Cyprian thought he was a superlative man, was governed the church, died of heroic martyrdom under the persecution, during the persecution of Decius. All right. So all of this going on. Now, right now, at this moment, this is what we call a theophany. It is a visible manifestation of deity. This is the first public manifestation we have of all three persons, right? You have the sun descending in the water, going down into the waters, looking like a sinner. Every, okay, Jesus doing what? He's debasing himself. He's humbling himself. He immerses himself in that water to show what? His solidarity with each and every one of us. Just like in the genealogy, remember through the genealogy showed his solidarity with us? Reconciling Jew and Gentile, saint and sinner, male and female. So he descends into the water, looking like a sinner. Now what is so amazing, is when he comes up, the heaven rents asunder, the Holy Spirit, under the form of a dove, descends upon him, stays with him. It is the moment of Jesus' anointing that he is the Christ. He is the one who is to come. And then, in addition to the Spirit and the presence of the Son, you have the voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus, whenever he acts with this incredible humility, is pleasing to the Father. And there's going to come another time in his life when he's going to look like a sinner, right? When he's going to be debased, degraded, looks like a horrible criminal, and it looks like he's been abandoned by God. But we know from the baptism, right? Because remember what he says? I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how constrained I am that it be accomplished. You know, he's talking about his passion, the crucifixion. So he identifies that with baptism. It's a baptism of blood. But whenever he humiliates and debases himself, the Father is pleased because that's the divine plan. So the baptism, you see, is a foretaste of what's going to happen at the end of the gospel with Jesus' crucifixion. Does that make sense to everybody? But what this is not rejection of God. This is what pleases God. Because the root of all sin is... Pride. That's what the devil doesn't like, right? And so he's coming to redeem. He's coming to buy us back. So this act of abasement, of showing solidarity with all sinful humanity, become one of us, becomes so important. Make sense to everybody? The baptism, a great moment. The starting of the ministry. Then after this, he goes out into the desert. Let's go on to chapter 4. We're making progress on chapter 4. It's pretty good, huh? All right? Chapter 4, out into the desert. Then Jesus was led into the desert by the Spirit that had come down and descended upon him and anointed him. All right? And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Understatement of the year. If I miss breakfast, I struggle. All right? 40 days and 40 nights. 40 days, 40 nights. Sound familiar? 40 days, 40 nights. What's that room? Anybody? Can anyone think? 
What's that? Noah and the ark. Very good. Anything else? Moses was up on the mountains 40 days, 40 nights. Anything else on 40? Elijah the prophet, 40 days, 40 nights. Is there any other 40? Oh, I love that you said that. 40 years wandering the desert. Okay, nothing is in here by accident. He goes out for 40 days, incredible fast, like Moses, like Elijah, like all the prophets. We might even say like Israel herself. 40 years wandering in the desert. Where is he? He's in the desert. Remember that prophecy? Out of Egypt I have called my son. So he goes out into the desert, the place of trial, the place of temptation. Who else went through trial and temptation in the desert? Israel did, right? All right. Now, in order to be baptized and go out into the desert, he has to cross the Jordan, right? Which means that after being out in the Jordan and being tempted, what is he going to have to do again? He's going to have to come back. He's going to have to cross the Jordan again. Who crossed the Jordan? Joshua. The same name as Jesus. You know that. Jesus' name was Joshua bar Yosef. That's his name. All right? Joshua is G Jesus, just the Greek form. All right? So all of these parallels. So he is incorporating in his person the whole of Israel's story, all of salvation history. So he's fasting 40 days, 40 nights. He was hungry. Okay, Matthew's telling you that because, yes, we know he's Christ, he's, we know he's the Messiah, we know he's the Son of God, but he's also fully and completely man. He's a man like us in all things but sin. And the fact that he didn't sin doesn't make him less human, it makes him more human, right? When you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, when you're doing things that are virtuous and good, aren't you fully alive? It's when you sin, when you become a slave of sin, that what are you doing? You're debasing your humanity. You're losing your humanity. That's why when you go to confession and you kneel and the blood of Christ through the priest's hand is poured all over you, you rise new. You're fully human then, right? That's why Mother Teresa was a person fully alive, fully human, right? The saints are the most human there are, right? John Paul II, the men, so beatified. Isn't that just awesome news? I'm so jazzed. All right, so he's going to be beatified. But the man for others, Jesus the man for others. Now, he's hungry, and the tempter come and said to him, If thou art the Son of God, command that these stones become loaves of bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Not by bread alone does man live, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. Now notice, beautiful tribute to God's word, right? But man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. In the beginning was... Okay, you with me on this? Okay, the, there, there, this is a very rich text. Now, there's all sorts of questions. Theologians argue back and forth. Did the, devil, did the devil know he was God? Well, what do you think? He's an angelic being. He's not dumb. But there is something that's new now that he's never tried before. He's never had experience before. We know he hates God. But every one of these temptations that we're going to see goes after him through what? Okay, touching upon humility, touching upon his humanity. We now have God. He's always been in opposition to God, but now we have God 
united to man. So you have a hunger instinct. You need to satisfy that. Command these stones to be turned into bread. And Jesus gives a very intriguing... Not by bread alone does man live. Now the 40 days are over. His fast is over. Can he eat? He could eat if he wants to. So the devil is trying to get him to do something here. All right? To do something here. To use his power in a, in a different sort of way. But he refuses to do that. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If thou art the Son of God, throw thyself down, for it is written, He will give his angels charge concerning thee, and upon their hands they shall bear thee up, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written further, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. So in this temptation, what does the devil make use of? What is the devil quoting? He's quoting scripture. Jesus answers with scripture. So now, can the devil use scripture? Yeah. St. Augustine says most heresies come from a misreading of scripture, latching onto one aspect of scripture, not reading it in its totality. So he tries that. Now it's interesting. Jesus must have loved the book of Deuteronomy. Because every time he's answering the devil, he's quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Moses. All right? So, he goes on, it is further written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. You see how he's sort of playing with him a little bit here? You shall not tempt the Lord thy God. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And he said to them, All these things will I give to thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. All right? Now, in a very real sense, he's saying all these kings, and these are mine. These are mine. Remember one of his titles? One of the devil's titles? He is prince of this world. Not that the world's bad, but the spirit of worldliness, power, ambition, all of these things that are contrary to the spirit of the gospel, he lords and he says, these are mine, and I'll give them to you if you bow down and worship me. Then Jesus said, be gone, Satan, for it is written, The Lord thy God shalt thou worship, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Wow. There's another time when angels are going to minister him too, right? When was that? Agony the garden. So it tells you, I mean, now a couple of things we want to note here. The Greek word that is used here for tempting is perizane, which means, probably better translated, attesting. It was a testing. Because when we hear temptation, a lot of times psychologically we think temptation like we have temptation, right? You know what I mean by that? There's something inside of us because of original sin that there's something inside of us that kind of pulls us towards what's wrong and what's evil. Jesus did not have that type of concupiscence, all right? Because he was freed from that. So this is a testing. If you are, do this. Do this. Do this. Now, this passage that I just read to you, it's great, great meditation for, for Lent. But we have to treat this text with great reverence. Everything in the Gospel we have to treat with great reverence, but this ha needs special reverence on our part. Because how do we know about the temptation in the desert? How do we know this story? Jesus must have told his apostles. At some moment, 
around a campfire. They were probably talking about a possession, something, the devil being driven out or something. And Jesus must have, in a lowered voice, said, I went out into the desert after my baptism. This is his spiritual biography. He's giving us an intimate glimpse into something very deep in his spiritual life here. And so he must have told the apostles, and it certainly made a deep impression upon Matthew because he wrote it down. And I'm sure the other apostles as well. So it's an intimate glimpse. Now what I would like you to do here, just for a second while we're on this, uh, there's a couple of things that we want to observe about this particular passage and what's actually taking place here. When Israel was out in the desert, it succumbed to the temptation of sensuality, presumption, and idolatry, right? That's how Israel fell. Remember the worship of the golden calf, and they're up making revelry and all that, and they're presuming on God's mercy and all that kind of stuff. Christ is now the new Jesus, is the new Israel. And where Israel went out in the desert and fell and wandered for 40 years, he goes out for 40 days, and now he conquers. The devil tries everything, and the devil does not win. So he's giving us an incredible example, right? And also a reminder that what we think we cannot do on our own, with him, we can, right? So just as Israel fell, now Israel is being restored. We are being redeemed through the saving action of Jesus Christ. Now, if you'll humor me just for a second, I want you to hold, don't lose that place in your scripture, but I want you to flip to Matthew 16, verse 23. Are there any Protestants here who've got it already? Just thought I'd say, <laughs> you're all piking. You do? You've got it? Oh, that's okay. Could you read it out loud? Do you have a stentorian voice? Can you blast it out? But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not on the side of God, but of men. Fine. Now that's kind of weird. Now you remember, we're going to get to Matthew 16 next week. This is after Peter makes his great profession of faith. And after makes his great profession that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What does Jesus immediately say after Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God? He talks to Peter, praises him, so he's going to be the rock, the key bear, and all that. But immediately after that, he says, And we're going to be going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be rejected by the chief priests and the elders, who will scourge him, mock him, and will put him to death. All right? The whole question, right? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Yes, I am. But I'm going to be scourged, mocked, and killed. Peter comes up. If you heard someone you love say that, you would be very concerned. Peter comes up and says, Oh no, Lord, this is not going to happen to you. This doesn't have to happen. And what does Jesus call him? Get behind me, Satan. I lead you. You don't lead me, Satan. So this gives us an insight also. He calls him Satan because there was something that Peter said that Jesus immediately recognized as the essence of the satanic temptation. And that takes us right back to the temptation in the desert. Right? And all three of these temptations are types of a false messianic idea. Right? 
You want to win men? If you are the Son of God, command that those stones be turned into bread. You want to win men? Be the bread king. Turn rocks into bread. Give everybody bread. That's the way to be the Messiah. All right? You want to win men? Go up to the top of the temple. They think it's the southeast corner overlooking the Brook of Kidron. It would have been a 450-foot drop all the way down if he jumped on that. Jump off and be floating in the air. Do something spectacular. Make everyone go, gee, willikers, look at that. All right? Or become a great king. Come with power. All the kingdoms of the world. Have Julius, have Augustus Caesar, whatever, Tiberius, come and bow down before you. Come as a political messiah. Every one of those temptations involved a common theme. What Satan absolutely does not want to have happen is what? The passion. The cross. He does not want the cross. Does not want the cross. If the essence of all sin is pride, when Satan utters his non servium, I will not serve. Right? That's what he says. And then God visits this world. It starts with the baptism. Right? Then out in the temptation, anything but the cross, anything but the cross, anything but that. And so when Peter comes up and says, oh Lord, you don't have to do that. It's like it touches a raw nerve. It's going back to this spiritual biography. Get ye behind me, Satan. He hates the cross because it's the path of humility. It's the path of suffering. It's the path of unity with mankind. And Satan hates God and he hates mankind. Does that make sense to everybody? So, Jesus now, by resisting, by being put to the test, just as Israel in the Old Testament was put to the test, emerges triumphant. And what a consolation, that if we stay united with him, we also can emerge triumphant, united with him, because he is the victor. Does that make sense to everybody? So, a very powerful, beautiful passage. All right. Now, after that, let's go on. Now, when he heard that John had been delivered up, he withdrew into Galilee. Now, he's withdrawing from the region of Judea. Some people say, oh, he's withdrawing, he's afraid. He's not afraid. He's going into Galilee. That's where Herod has control. All right? So don't misunderstand that. He's withdrawing from Judea into Galilee. He's going into the area where Herod has his authority. Because nothing's going to stop him from his mission. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how constrained I am that it be accomplished. So he's going forward, all right, and he goes up to Galilee. And leaving the town of Nazareth, his beautiful home, where he'd spent all that time with his mother, who he loved so dearly and was so close to, and Joseph, whom he loved so much. That's why Jesus loves the family. That's why he hates divorce. All right? That's why he loves children. That's why he talks about millstones if there's a scandal. Because he loved family. He loved his family. And spent so much of his earthly existence with his mother and with his father. So he leaves Nazareth and came to dwell in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, that that what was spoken by Isaiah the prophets might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. 
And upon those who sat in the region in the shadow of death, a light has arisen. Now, I'm always amused sometimes when people try to take the Gospels and pull them apart or separate them like they're all totally different. Doesn't that prophecy and the use of that prophecy remind you of St. John? In him was light, and the light was the life of men. All right? These are so harmonious. They all come together. Matthew here is recalling the prophecy because Jesus is light. He is truth incarnate. He is illumination of the mind, feeding the soul. And so he settles down at Capernaum. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Sound familiar? Who said that? John the Baptist. Absolute continuity. The Baptist may have been shut up in prison, but the message will not be silenced. And we need to repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is going to be a key to understanding everything that's going to happen with the proclamation of the kingdom in chapter 5. Because he wants you to repent. And the word for repent is metanoia. It means a change of heart. Not just superficial conformity. Something that goes to the core of your person. That's what the biblical notion of heart means. Someday maybe we'll come back and we'll do the sacred heart and talk a little bit about that because that's an incredible devotion that you need to know very, very well. Make it a big part of your life. Okay, so he wants a conversion of heart and that's what he's preaching. And as he was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Why is this important? This is important because it shows right at the very beginning. Matthew is the evangelist of the church. Jesus, from the very beginning of his ministry, plans to establish a church. First thing he does, all right, goes to Capernaum, passes by the sea and starts calling disciples. And always, always, in every list, who's the first one? Well, I'm glad you said Peter, but Simon, all right? He's not Peter yet. But this is why Matthew wants to make sure that you get it, all right? So he says, Simon, who is called Peter. He can't even wait. He didn't say he called Simon and Andrew. He says, Simon, who is called Peter, because he wants you to know that the guy who's going to be the rock is the first guy called. Nothing in here is an accident. It's all part of what he's trying to communicate about the importance of the church. This first one called is Simon, who will be called Peter, who's going to be the rock. Because if you're going to build a structure, what's the first thing you need? Rock. All right? You need a foundation stone, and Matthew's communicating this to us. So his first act is calling disciples. Does he intend to establish a church? Absolutely. While he's on earth, in his lifetime. Not in the middle of the third century. Not when Constantine comes along. You know, the church is not just an institution. The church is his bride. He dies for the church. He loves the church. Somehow we've bought into this thing about as if the church is a separate or a foreign thing. He loves the church. He dies for the church. And that's all of us. That includes bishops, right? Includes the Pope, all right? The Pope his special representative on earth, so he calls him. And his brother Andrew, follow me, you'll become fishers of men. So already there's going to be an outreach. You be my disciple, and then you're going to catch men. Remember his first thing, come. 
That's always his first word, come. And that's what we need to do. We need to, and that's why you need to read this and prayerfully spend time with it. Because you need to come to him to learn him, to learn about his words, to take on, as St. Paul says, the mind of Christ. So many times we're evangelized, we have the mind of the world. Like everything begins and ends at Nordstrom's. I, I, Nordstrom's great, I, I, whatever, you know, Macy's. Kmart, I don't care, whatever, all right? But you know what I'm saying? We get so caught up in things of the world, what they're saying in the media, what they're doing here, what they're doing that. And those things are okay. I'm not saying they're bad, but the first thing we have to do at the beginning of every day is come. Come. And once you come, and once you learn, then, guess what the last word of the gospel is going to be at the very end of chapter 28? Go. <laughs> All right? So you come, and then you can go. But the problem is, if you don't come and learn, if you don't spend time with him, then when all the news reports go, and this is going on, and that's going on, what's my ground? How do I interpret? How do I make sense of this? What do I do with all this? All right? That's a problem. All right? So come, and you will be fishers of men. And at once they left their nets and followed him. And going farther on, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with Zebedee, their father. As a dad, this still kind of gets to me. But anyway, mending their nets. And he called them and immediately left their nets and their father and followed him. And Jesus went all about Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every sickness among the people. Incredible. The why? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's going about to all the synagogues. In the temple in Jerusalem, that's where the sacrifices were going on. But every Jewish village, every Jewish town, and there were about 239 villages in Galilee. Galilee was densely populated, about 3 million people living in Galilee at that time. All right? It is a very fertile region. I remember the first time I went to the Holy Land, I was shocked at how absolutely breathtakingly beautiful Galilee was. It was green. Mind you, the green hills of Ireland. It was beautiful. There's an abundance of water, the Jordan River, water flowing down from Mount Hermon, the snow-covered peaks, etc. Absolutely beautiful. So you go into the synagogue, and basically, if you were a wandering rabbi, you would go into the synagogue. It would begin with prayer. There would be a reading of scripture, and then a teaching would be imparted. So this was very natural. So he's going in proclaiming the kingdom of God, but now in addition to this, healing every disease and every sickness among the people. And notice, these miracles, no one denies the miracles. The miracles are a fact. Even Josephus, the historian, said he was a doer of the most extraordinary things because his memory of all of these incredible healings. As a matter of fact, the healings can't be denied. They get so desperate that what do they say? It's the devil that he does it through the devil. You've got to be really desperate to say something like that, right? Especially when you're doing so many good things, like the man with the withered hand in the gospel the other day. Remember that? We had a very powerful moment. One of our chaplains out at Christendom College, Father William, was in a horrible accident some years ago. I don't think he would mind me telling you this, but the car caught on fire, and uh, he lost consciousness, and his, he was burned over like 75% of his body, and that's really... You know, you normally don't come back with that kind of burn. But his hands were really burned. He's lost most of the ends of most of his fingers. He doesn't have feeling. It's a very moving thing to say is watch him say Mass. And I remember when he was up there and that gospel passage was read, he just sort of shook his head. 
And he said, how could anyone, if there was a man who had a hand that was withered, that couldn't work, you know? And I went into rehab and I saw people with horrible disfigurements in their hands from accidents and things like that. And he said, how could anybody not want that to be healed? How could anybody not want that to be healed? And it was very poignant. But it shows you the hardness of heart that he was dealing with. They, you know, you can't heal a man's hand on the Sabbath, but you can go out and plot to kill somebody on the Sabbath because you don't like a good deed that was done. There's a problem there. There's a problem with the constriction of heart. And a warning to all of us to avoid that type of constriction of heart because we can constrict our hearts in many, many ways. And that's not what he's about. All right? And his fame spread into all of Syria. Now, Syria is a huge Roman province in the east. All of Syria. And they brought him all the sick, suffering from various diseases and torments, those possessed and lunatics and paralytics. And he cured them. And large crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. What is taking place here is salvation history. This is big news. There has never in the history of Old Testament ever been the word crowds used. Vast crowd. Throng. But now when they say crowds, they mean vast multitudes of people. And I'm afraid that many of our movies of Jesus of Nazareth, which I think are great, don't really communicate the number of people that were flocking to see him. All right? If you have a world shrouded in darkness and you turn that light on, And then people who are coming who are bringing their parents, their children who are suffering, their loved ones, and they're being healed, you can see the impact that that's going to have. Our Lord was like a a vast sponge just absorbing all of this. And even though he's God, he's fully human, imagine the exhaustion that would have been his. And yet you never hear of complaints. Even when he tells the disciples, come away for a little bit, let's cross the sea and rest. And he tries to get away and he goes there and they know where he's going and he comes, there's this vast crowd. I know what I'd do if I got there. Oh, jeez, what are you people doing here? He looks at them and he's moved with compassion because they're like sheep without a shepherd and he goes out to heal them. All right. So these large crowds are following him. Now... We're done chapter 4. Let's go on to chapter 5. Chapter 5 begins the proclamation of the kingdom. Today's Thursday. Third luminous mystery, right? Proclamation of the kingdom. If you're looking for something to meditate upon while you're doing that, chapter 5 to 7 of Matthew. Read that. Breathe that. Make that part of your thing, you know. Blessed are the pure in spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among... Blessed the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. All right? Blessed are the meek. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed... And go through each step of the kingdom as you go. Now again, who is Matthew writing for? Thank you. He's writing for Jews, the Hebrew people. So bear that in mind as we look at this. And seeing the crowds... First time ever in Scripture that plural is used for crowd. That's how many people are flocking there. He went up the mountain. Now, I'm sorry, if you're a Hebrew and you read that, what do you think of? He went up the mountain. You're darn right. He's thinking, and he wants you to think of Moses. He goes up to the mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. See the structure? <laughs> it's like church, right? The crowds are there, but the disciples come close because they're more intimate because he's interested in the church, right? 
And so he's going to speak to his disciples. So he goes up on the mountain and he sits down. Now, why does he sit down? He sits down because back then, sitting is the position of authority. Today, the lecture, I'm standing up. That's sort of the symbol. If you're standing up, everyone else is sitting. I wish we'd go back to this old tradition. But anyway, you can sit down and take it easy. But in those days, the rabbis had the chair. Remember, they sat on the chair of Moses. That was their thing. So when he goes up the mountain, it's reminiscent of Moses. And then he sits on the chair. That is a position of his teaching authority. That's why every bishop in his cathedral has a cathedra. The chair. When the Pope speaks infallibly, he is speaking ex cathedra, from the chair, the seat of his apostolic authority. So that's what Jesus is doing. So a Hebrew reading this, this would just really resonate with him. And we know the spot where this is, overlooking the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee, you have to make a pilgrimage sometime to the Holy Land. Beautiful body of water, it's fresh water. 13 miles north to south, 18 miles east to west radiant blue. And you go up there on the side of the mountain and you're looking out at this vast expanse of blue. The setting is overwhelmingly beautiful. I remember we traveled there jubilee year with Father Saunders and I remember Father Saunders said mass for us on the side of the mountain where the Mount of Beatitudes was a beautiful church there. But we were actually out and I'll never forget because when it came time for him to celebrate Eucharist for us and it came time for the elevation and he raised our Lord up and the sun shone through the host. And it, we were just sitting there and I said, once again, we are with the master on the mountain. And I felt like one of the disciples, you know, sitting right there. It's a great moment. Spectacular setting. And then look at verse 2. And opening his mouth he taught them saying. So in other words, opening the mouth. Why? The word is going to give the word. Right? That's why it's opening his mouth. Remember St. Paul says in times past he spoke in divers ways to us through the prophets. Now in these last days he has spoken to us through his son. All right? And you're going to have to notice things in here, what's very different. When the prophet, because he, he's not just a prophet. This is what we call implicit Christology. You're not going to find him saying, thus says the Lord God. That's what all the prophets say. You know what he's going to say? I say. Okay, that's incredible. Okay, and we're going to come to that. That's implicit Christology. You've got to look at that. Now, he's the new Moses. He's on the mountain. And just as while Moses was on the mountain, he got the revelation of the law, and that became the new covenant. So now this is going to be the new charter of his kingdom. Now, he's not describing here, as we go through this, groups of people or types of people. These are the dispositions that we're all to have. All right? Anyone who is a Christian, anyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ, who has the mind of Christ Jesus, will have these dispositions. And if you have these dispositions, blessed are you, happy are you. And what are the dispositions? Let's start and go through them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What's at hand? Kingdom of heaven. But in order to get the kingdom of heaven, you have to be poor in spirit. What is the opposite of poor in spirit? Rich in spirit. If you are so full of yourself, if you're so rich in spirit that you don't think you need anything, guess what can't get inside of you? The Holy Spirit. 
right? It's to the poor, to the ones that realize their own impoverishment, that alone and on their own, they can't make it. The ones who think they got their act together and they're totally together and they don't need anything, there's no room for the Holy Spirit. There's no room for conversion. We have Abraham for our father. We don't need to be baptized by you. I tell you, God could raise sons of Abraham up out of these very stones. All right? So the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the meek, for they shall possess the earth. Someone who is meek is someone who has control of their passions. They don't overreact to things. They're in control, and the reason they're in control and they don't overreact because their primary concern is not themselves. Their primary concern is the other person. The other person. We've got to remember, I, know we're, I hope we will eventually get to this, but it is an amazing thing. It's found in Matthew's Gospel, so I'll bring it up now because we want to do the whole Gospel, that there are two virtues <laughs> that Jesus holds out as, that most exemplify his person in the core of his being, in his heart. When he holds his heart up, the core of his person. You remember what they are? Learn of me, for I am meek and humble of heart. Now, the more we think about the Incarnation what it means for God to become a man in everything that he went through, from the baptism, all right, to the horrible crucifixion, the humility, the humility. Even the dying thief hanging on the cross who's lived a horrible life says, makes an act of faith, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And even when the ship's going down, Jesus will take that. This day you will be with me in paradise. And that should all give us hope. But what humility. What incredible humility. Even as he's hanging on the cross and they're mocking him. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, you've seen the passion of the Christ, right? I mean, someone in that type of physical agony and you're mocking him? You're mocking any human being in that type of agony? And then in that situation, hearing the mocking, what does he say? <laughs> Father, forgive them. They know not what they are doing. I'm sorry, that is incredible humility. That is meekness beyond. So this is the characteristic of the kingdom. See, there's a continuum between what Jesus says and what he teaches and the way in which he lives, which culminates in the passion, death, and resurrection, as we will see. After that, blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The gift of tears, the gift of weeping. Weeping, most of the time, taken understood, is having tears for your sins, that you're sorrowful about the fact that you have sinned. And you're open to the sorrow of others, all right? That you will be there to console them. Like St. Paul, who is weak and I am not weak with them. You know, that sense of love, fraternal charity. And so he goes on after that. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for justice or for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now notice, just now this is a real drive. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. We would probably put that today for holiness. You really want to be holy. But just like when we are really hungry or really thirsty, we long for food or we long for drink. That's the type of desire. And when you have people who really want to be good, really want to be holy, the prayer, God, make us saints, make us saints. That's what he's talking about. Really wanting to do that. When St. Thomas's sister came up and said, Thomas, you're such a holy Dominican, what do I need to do to become a saint? And Thomas said very simply, will it. Will it. 
In other words, the grace is there. God loves you infinitely. If you cooperate, if your will, if your heart is in the right place, he's going to give you the grace required. All right. So blessed are they who hunger and thirst for holiness, really wanting to be a saint. That's why when you leave that confessional, firm purpose of amendment, I don't want to do that again. I want to be the person that Christ wants me to be because that's the only way I'm ever going to be happy. And that's the only way I'll ever really find myself. It's only when we find Christ and surrender to him that we really become ourselves. The world doesn't talk that way. That's the devil, you know. I got to be me. I got to do my thing. I got to be myself. All right? But that's apart from Christ. And the problem is, if that's what you want, that's what you're going to get. And you never will find yourself. True freedom comes from in the act of submission. All right? In the act of submission and letting him do his thing in you. And then you know what? You become happy because that's what we're meant to be. So he goes on. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Okay, God is merciful. Christ is merciful. In our lives, we need to be merciful with ourselves and also with those who are around us. You know, sometimes we set a very high standard on other people, a lot higher than we have for our own selves, right? Or we look very much at their flaws, at their problems, what they do that's wrong. And we sort of latch on to that, and we don't look at our own lives. And that can be a real problem, all right? Just like we're all pro-life, we want to be staunchly pro-life, but there are other sins other than abortion, right? And sometimes we can get so focused on abortion that we begin to neglect even things in terms of our own lives that have to be right. And that's the primary issue. Don't get my, no, I'm with you on that. The life issue is the most important issue. But sometimes we can be blinded to other things. Blessed are the clean of heart, for they shall see God, the pure of heart. Have a pure intention to want God above all else. And of course, the great example of that is the Blessed Mother, right? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And guess what she got to do? See him all the time, right? What a moment that must have been right after the birth, right? Waiting nine months, praying, waiting nine months, and then finally the child comes out. And it's always such a miracle when that happens. And what must Mary and Joseph have thought in the incredible moment when, for the first time, the baby opened his eyes? And we know since Mary gave everything to his human nature, he must have looked a lot like Mary. But one of the great things, one of the great surprises, when he opened his eyes, he had his daddy's eyes, right? Because the eyes are the window of the soul, and you're looking into the soul. There's only one person, and that's God, all right? So what must it have been like for her? Do I pick him up? Do I nurse him? Do I fall down? Do I worship him? But she gets to see God. We have to look up to heaven. She didn't have to look up because she held heaven in her arms. All right? And she's part of this ministry too throughout all of this. All right? Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called children of God. Bringing people together. Being an instrument of peace, where there is hatred, sowing love, bringing a, being a force of reconciliation. So many things in our woods which are pulling people apart, dividing people apart. I'm not talking about a false peace, but a genuine peace that stems from you being a peaceful person. Blessed are they who suffer persecution for justice' sake, or for holiness, or for righteousness' sake. All right? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then culminating this, Blessed are you when men reproach you and persecute you, and speaking falsely say all manner of evil against you for my sake. 
Rejoice and exult. <laughs> really? <laughs> okay. Rejoice and exult. Because your reward is great in heaven, for so did they persecute the prophets who were before you. So, even when things aren't going right, and if you're trying to get into the kingdom, you know they're not going to go right, because there's going to be all sorts of misunderstandings and difficulties. It's like even after a really good confession, when you're heartily sorry, you know that within probably two hours of coming out there, something's going to happen that's just going to zing right on the very thing you just confessed, and... You know what I'm talking about? All right, There's going to be a challenge. There's going to be a problem. But if the problem is encountered, you overcome it, and you rejoice and exult. Why? Because it's for his name's sake. None of us like to suffer, but there are plenty of crosses that come in ordinary life. It's a question of what do you do with that? What do you do with the crosses when they do come? Do you rejoice and exult because they draw you closer to him whom we love? That's the proper Christian response, and that's what he's talking about. Now he goes on to start talking. I think most of the next passage is directed to the disciples primarily or close, but it affects everyone who has the name Christian. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its strength, what shall it be salted with? It's no longer of any use to be thrown out and trodden underfoot. We all know what salt does, right? My mom told me since I was three years old, it's going to kill you. I'm amazed, you know. I salt pizza. That's how bad I, I... I love this passage. All right? But salt preserves things, right? And it makes things tasty. All right? And so, as a Christian, we're meant to be that salt. We're supposed to bring things to life that make it more enjoyable, more engaging. That's the thing. If you are a Catholic and you're living the faith, you should be a lot happier than our pagan brothers and sisters. Because you don't have to throw the tree out on December 26th. <laughs> the kings haven't even got there yet. With the faith, there's more, all right? But you're meant to be a salt, a preservative, something that adds things to life and that people will see and notice. doesn't mean you have to be on the street corner preaching all the time. But if you're living the dispositions that he has proclaimed in this kingdom, people will notice there's something different about you. They like to be around you. Like, do you ever have an old holy grandmother in your family, the Nona, you know, who is just so sweet, and you just, you know, you're a kid, you're grat you just sort of go to them. She's a church lady, but she's everywhere. But she's always thinking about other people, always there for others. And there was a salt about that. There was a flavor that came from that. So he goes on. You are the light of the world. Now, of course, Christ is the light. But if you're a disciple, what are you also? You also are light. You're the light of the world. A city set on a mountain cannot be hidden. Neither do men light a lamp, like a light, a lamp rather, and put it under the measure, but upon the lampstand, so as to give light to all in the house. Now again, the house is another symbol of the church. All right. If you are doing good things, you let the light shine. You let the light shine. I think that's why Pope Benedict wrote that encyclical, Deus Caritas Est. Now, most of us think you start with faith, then you go to hope, then you go to charity. That's not what the Pope did. He started with charity, then went to hope. We got a social encyclical, but I can, I'm pretty confident. You know what another encyclical is going to be? Faith. 
All right? But the reason you start is because charity is salt. Charity is light. If we, if Christians are really, you know, like the pagans said, look how they love one another. If we really are exercising that charity, they're going to see, why are you acting this way? Because we have a hope. Why do you have hope? Because we have faith. All right? Mother Teresa didn't have to do a lot of preaching, you know. She just had to do that. And people came because they saw the goodness. They saw light. They saw salt. And they wanted that. There's a famous story about an American businessman who visited Mother Teresa in Calcutta and saw one of her nuns just bathing this leper who had just these horrible sores and the stench was horrible. And the businessman looked and just, you know, sometimes you're kind of embarrassed, you feel awkward, you don't know what to say. And the businessman said, I wouldn't do that for a million bucks. And the nun sort of smiled, looked up and said, neither would I. <laughs> Went on cleaning. Went on cleaning. All right. She has the disposition of the kingdom. She is salt. She is light. Even so, let your light shine before men. Jesus doesn't want our Catholic faith something that's hidden. That's why this institute and what it's trying to do is so important, because the light needs to shine. And it's great. The light needs to shine in our own house first, right? Because if it shines in the house, people are going to see lights flashing through the window. And then you take that light out into the world, and men will begin to see your good works. And what will they do? Give glory to the Father in heaven. And that's exactly what you want to see happen. So he goes on. Now again, a concern for the Jews. The Mosaic Law. What happens with the Mosaic Law? What does he say after this new charter of the kingdom? This is what it takes to get into the kingdom. Look at 17. Do not think that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I have not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For amen, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot, or one tittle shall be lost from the law. This is the tiniest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. That's what a jot. Tittle is like a little comma thing that they put in the Hebrew. Tiny little markings that would go in the Hebrew alphabet. He says, not one of those things from the law till all things have been accomplished. Now, of course, when are all things accomplished? On the cross. It is accomplished. All right? And when it's accomplished the whole legal and the whole liturgical thing is swept away. Not the moral law, right? Moral law remains. You don't commit adultery, you don't steal, you don't murder, and all of that continues. But the other, the ceremonial aspect, the legal prescriptions, all of that is done away when it's accomplished. And it's accomplished with his death. Therefore, whoever does away with one of these least commandments and so teaches men shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever carries them out and teaches others, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your justice exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, what he has just taught that we've looked at in chapter 5 is a revolution. This is topsy-turvy-dumb. It's turning everything in the world upside down. The world worships the powerful, the strong, the champion. No, the meek, those who mourn, those who are peacemakers. Everything is being inverted. All of the worldly values are being inverted now. And then he says, unless your justice exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. That shocks them. Why? Scribes and Pharisees are the righteous ones. But there's a problem with the scribes and the Pharisees. And the problem with the scribes and Pharisees, sadly, at that time, their religion had simply become external 
formula. External form, that's all it was. What was his fundamental message? Repent and believe the gospel, the kingdom of heaven at hand. Metanoia, you need a change of heart. God is not going to want superficial conformity with exterior rituals. He wants a complete change of heart. Remember Cardinal Newman's motto, heart speaks to heart. God loves us too much to be superficial with us. What does he want? As Frank Sinatra used to sing, all or nothing at all. Okay, he wants your heart. He wants the core of your being. That's what he wants. And that's the type of revolution that he's going to start. A spiritual revolution that's not going to stop with external, as we're going to see, but it goes to the heart. It's not just enough not to commit adultery. If you're thinking lustful thoughts about a woman, that has to go too. It's not enough to say, I haven't killed anyone. If you're killing with the tongue, calling someone raka, you stupid idiot, you jerk, what's the matter with you? All right? Abusive speech is a form of murder. And we murder with the tongue, as James says. Oftentimes it's a fire set on fire and kindled in hell. All right? But Christ wants the new creation. He wants the new man. He wants our happiness. And that's why he says, son, give me thy heart. And that's why his last gift on the cross is going to be the opening of his side, right? And then the giving of his heart. And I see the big zero at the back, and so on that will end. Let's, shall we end with a glory be? Is that all right? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end, amen. St. Matthew. In the name of the Father, Son, of the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. O'Donnell. Next week, we'll be taking a specific look at passages where our Lord speaks about the church, and then the last part will focus on the passion. Apologetics question. You mentioned um, Peter being the first called. Mm-hmm. Uh, in John chapter 1, it says that Andrew was the first called. Mm-hmm. Could you comment on that? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. That's a very good, that's a very good point. Um, the call of Andrew, it seems that there was an initial call in John's Gospel, not the formal call of the Apostle. Remember, Andrew and John are the first to be, have it, him, Jesus pointed out by the Baptist, but they're the ones who follow Jesus. And they say, where are you staying, Rabbi? And then he says, come and see. All right. So it's not the formal call as such, as what's going to happen on the Sea of Galilee. And then secondly, it makes it even more poignant because Matthew, when he's gathering his material and arranging the material, has a specific point that he wants to make. And what he wants to make is that Christ came to bring the kingdom of God on earth. The kingdom on earth is the church. All right. So when it comes to the time for the actual call, he chooses not, he doesn't go back to that earlier period. Now maybe he didn't know, I would have to imagine he probably knew, but he selected this because the way he's structuring it, it's historically accurate, but he wants to emphasize this moment of calling, and for him, Peter is the first one formally called. Remember in John, Andrew goes and he gets Peter, but even in there, Jesus looks at him and says, you know, you are Simon, son of John, you shall be Kephos. 
and makes a prediction. So there's no real contradiction. But this scene at the Sea of Galilee that Matthew is narrating involves the formal calling of the apostle, not the first one who sees Jesus and he goes after him. But this is when Jesus says, I want you. So it's very significant theologically that Simon, and that's why he adds the Peter, wants to make sure you know that it's a... Because you could almost do a study of when is he called Simon, when is he called Peter, when is he called Simon Peter. They all have significance. So he says, Simon who is called Rock. He wants you to know because this is going to be the beginning of the church. Yes, doctor. Good question. Uh, yeah, yes. Chapter 4, verse 23 says, And he went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues. Was he recognized that early on as a rabbi, or could people other than rabbis teach in the synagogues? That's a very, that's a very good question. Normally, others who were not rabbis would not teach. Okay? There would be a rabbi who would be in charge. But the fact, by the time he's coming doing this, he's, already, he's probably already been to Jerusalem one time. You probably already had the Cana incident. And remember, he's going around doing this, but at the same time, he's working all of these miracles. So there is already a sensation, there's already a reputation, there's a sense that he is a very holy man. And that's one of the reasons why when he comes back to Nazareth, they let him do it and say, hey, do what you've been doing everywhere. This is big stuff. All right? And then he just says some very hard things for them that's going to lead to a problem. But it normally would be a rabbi, and there were wandering rabbis or visiting rabbis, rabbis that would travel and would come and would part part of the message. But this was his mission, and he was recognized clearly as a rabbi, but probably also as a prophet, a prophetic-type figure, because, as we're going to see, at the very end of chapter 7, we didn't get that far tonight, but at the end of chapter 7, they're all marveling at him because he's not like the scribes and Pharisees, because he teaches with authority. And this is something, because when the rabbis would teach, so I mean, rabbi, yes, but more than a rabbi. Rabbis didn't go around doing these type of things. I mean, he's a prophet, but even more than a prophet, because he teaches in his own name with his own authority. Rabbis, when they would teach, would basically teach by quoting their masters. Rabbi Ben-Yah said, da-da-da-da-da-da. So to get someone who's going to stand up and say, I say unto you, this is without precedent. That's why he's not a marginal Jew. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Thank you. It's a very good question. When Jesus was baptized and the heavens opened and, and God spoke and the dove came down and everything, did everyone there hear and see that or did just John maybe or Jesus? I mean, did everyone in the crowd hear That's, that? That is a very good question. And some of the gospel texts focus on different things. There are some gospels where it seems as if John sees it and John beholds the deeper meaning. All right? There are other gospels, but it may be that they're just focusing on John at that moment. There are other gospels that clearly emphasize this was an external manifestation. Now, the dove coming down from heaven, everyone would have seen that. I mean, that would have been visible. Now, did everyone hear the voice? Did everyone understand fully the meaning? We don't know. I mean, there's no sort of Catholic position on this, but insofar as it's understood as a theophany, a visible manifestation from deity, certainly those present would have heard a voice, but what would that mean? You hear a voice, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. 
All right. Now, John, who is the precursor and has been preparing the way, trying to get people in a spiritual condition so that when Jesus teaches, they can receive him, he knows and he clearly perceives it. But there's room for both views. Clearly, John saw it, and John saw the deeper meaning and significance and would have discussed this with his disciples. I'm sure Jesus would have done that as well. But my own thought on this, and many other exegetes would say, this was a public manifestation of his anointing, and so others would have heard the voice. But to the extent that faith was in their hearts and they would have understood fully what was going on here, but clearly this was a special moment. Thank you very much, Dr. O'Donnell. That's it. Wow. Thank you. Okay. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.